The presenting sponsor of Behind the Beak is Down in Front Productions. DIFP is a video production company located in Birmingham, Alabama that strives to provide high-quality video services for your business or event at very competitive prices with a personal approach. They specialize in sporting events, weddings, and business videography, but also provide recording and video editing work for other events such as seminars, commercials, and concerts. Give Dustin and the crew a call at 205-588-0868 or visit them at difpbham.com. That's D-I-F-P-B-H-A-M.com to see how they can help you. Down in Front Productions, the presenting sponsor of Behind the Beat. Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Now, here's your host, Tyler Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Behind the Beat, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. I'm Tyler Brown, and this is episode number 22 of the series. If you missed last week's installment, the second half of episode number 21, it featured assistant men's basketball coach Tommy Wade. He walked us through his experiences of beating cancer and surviving a heart attack that Ended up also giving him third-degree burns across half of his body. It's an unbelievable story, and I would urge you to go back and listen if you haven't already. If you missed it, you can go back and listen at any time. All previous episodes of the podcast can be streamed at jsugamecocksports.com slash podcasts and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I hope that you've been able to follow along with us on social media with the Gamecock Madness Bracket Challenge, helping us to decide Jacksonville State's top Division I moment of the past 25 years. We're posting a new poll each day for you to vote on, and we're right in the middle of deciding which moments deserve a trip to the Final Four. So there's plenty of time to hop on board and vote for your favorite moment and send it to the championship. You can vote by visiting us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All three accounts can be found by searching at JSU Gamecocks. Also online, we're publishing daily stories to jsugamecocksports.com. Be sure to check the website each day for new stories, interviews, and features with your favorite JSU student athletes and coaches. For this week's episode, I talked to former Gamecock football and NFL star Eric Davis. The retired defensive back is currently living in Los Angeles and has been working on a gallery of different projects since he hung up his cleats at the end of the 2002 season. Drafted in 1990 in the second round by the San Francisco 49ers, Davis accomplished nearly everything you can in the NFL, named a pro bowler twice, an all-pro DB three times, and was a big contributor in the 49ers Super Bowl 29 title. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Here is this week's guest, Eric Davis. My guest on the podcast this week is former... Gamecock Eric Davis, former NFL Pro Bowler and Super Bowl champion. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Well, Eric, just to just to start off, uh, how are you? How's your health? How's your family during this uh, pandemic that we're all living through right now? Uh, well, you know what? I am well. The family is healthy. We're together you know, for the most part, all hunkered down. Uh, 
we have uh, you know just been trying to follow the protocol and stay healthy and and uh, you know hoping that everyone else can stay safe this has been you know different it's different but you know fortunately um uh the family likes one another so <laughs> so so we we sort of hung around one another before so this hasn't it, it hasn't taken us down you know so that's that's a good thing uh because you you learn a lot about one another during times like this and uh you know we found out hey we still like one another but yeah we've just been trying to stay safe and and uh not step on each other's toes too much because uh, you know you're going to have your moments but for the most part it's all been going it's been going okay and we're just like again just trying to stay healthy trying to keep our minds going and stay active and uh do what we can to take care of one another things uh probably a little different where you're at we're we're here in alabama you're over in california or living in los angeles right now how are things in los angeles how's things in california as far as everything goes uh is is life beginning to get back to normal is everything still kind of locked down there i know it's 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 a little different on the west coast right now um well yeah it's a little different i mean you you think about alabama what three million people in the uh state and here in LA, over eight million people in my city. Uh, so, you know, the lockdown is is a little different. I was talking to my dad, who's still in Addison. I was talking to him last night, uh, and we were standing in line to get into a grocery store, and, uh, and they were like, "What are you guys doing?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, you know, you really because of just the the numbers." Uh, you know, it's it's a it's on a larger scale just because you know by just simple you know simple math. Uh, but for the most part, it's like everywhere else. You're going to have people who are going to follow the protocol. You're going to have people who are tired of being, um, you know, at what they say locked in and locked down, which is hilarious to me because before before this pandemic was a thing, before uh, there were mandatory lockdowns. And, and people having to um, stay sheltered at home. Everyone was fiending for vacation. Mm-hmm. Everyone was was clamoring, and you couldn't wait for Friday. It was it was the thing that everybody looked forward to that weekend break. They couldn't wait to have for it to get warm and take some time off from work. And now you get the opportunity to do that, and everyone's going crazy. <laughs> uh, so. So, yeah, so that's one of the things out here, uh, but it's um, it's you, you you have to you try to keep yourself safe, and and it's just it's watching the world slow down. It's amazing that right now I can tell you one thing that I absolutely will miss when life gets back to normal, whatever that will be, and that's the fact that I can get across town in like 15 minutes because mm-hmm. there's no traffic it's it's an incredible thing to get on the roads and i mean you, you know you you get on the 405 out here or there's sections of the 101 where i mean you know it's it's five six seven lanes across and and normally it's truly bumper to bumper there, there are no cars on the on the road so that right there i will not miss the, the lack of traffic <laughs> <laughs> but but it's uh it's just just it's different but we've just like there i imagine we're sort of getting accustomed to the new normal here and and just waiting to see what that's going to be once we come out of this 
you mentioned your family still lives in Anniston, your hometown. And uh, just this last Sunday was Mother's Day. Uh, were you able to give mom a call? You know, is that normally a day that you would fly out and see her or maybe fly her out? And, you know, how was that altered this year? Uh, well, you know what? We were able to give her a call and, and talk to her, of course. And, and you try and, yeah, I mean, that's that's mom and dad and that's always going to be home and and you talk to them as, as much as you possibly can um you, you know and, and and as far as the the altering of the travel is just not one of those things that's on the books for for most right now unless it's absolutely necessary um and talking to you know talking to them is always great and we were able to do that and, and um you know get that going we didn't travel back, and that's not one of those days I would normally travel back for. You know, a few times we've done it when I, when I can get all of my siblings back because we're so we're all spread out. I mean, there's you know Northern California, um, you, know, you know East Coast, um, up in DC, and so, so guys, everyone's spread around. So we try to all make it to where we can get in again like i said my family likes one another my siblings we all still like one another <laughs> so we all try to make it to where we can get back together of course this isn't one of those times where you can do it and, and the other part of this is my my dad's birthday is may 10th so mm -hmm. uh this this actually would have been a great time to get back mother's day and my dad's birthday fell on the same time so that right there was unfortunate uh but again we got to talk to them all and um they're doing well uh just as just as feisty and, and strong and funny as ever so i'm always good to hear that but looking forward to getting back i, I actually haven't had an opportunity to get back home in over a year so i'm i'm really looking forward to getting back and, and um seeing everyone and it's funny you know all the time out here in la I I'd still like to just get back and, and just kind of walk the streets where I walked them before. Every mm -hmm. time I come back home, I, I go past my high school and I go up on campus and, um, you know, I, I still go to the, I, I mean, I still go into the bookstore and buy things. <laughs> I, I, I literally do. I do it every time, every time I'm there, you know, I'll stop by and, you know, I'll stop by and see Greg. I, I haven't caught him the last couple of times I was up there. Uh, he and I, he and I hooked up at one of the softball tournaments. You know, one of the softball games. So I, I still kind of go in. I'll sit and watch watch the teams play and and um, and just you know just think about it because I it's just great memories for me for being on campus and and, that, and um, I wouldn't change a thing. You played for JSU from 1986 to 1989. Uh, after that, spent 13 years in the NFL. During that time, like you mentioned, you've been back many times for games. Uh, when was the last time you were here for a football game? And, you know, from your freshman year in 86 to what Burgess Snowfield has become now, how much change have you seen in the program and this campus since you first stepped foot on it? Uh, now, from the t when I got on campus, I think there were probably a little over three thousand students or something like that. Um, and you look at what the program is now. I personally feel really, really good about it. 
I really do um, because I remember Coach Burgess bringing us in, that freshman crew that I came in with. I mean, before we got there, I think the team had won two games, two seasons prior, and then I think they won like three or four maybe. And we came in as a freshman uh, group in 86. And Coach Burgess, threw us all out there to the fire. I mean, <laughs> out, out of the, out of the, I mean, really we had a 55 man traveling squad and 45 of us, I believe were either freshmen or redshirt freshmen. We were true freshmen or redshirt freshmen. And he threw us out there and it was like sink or swim. And he told us what he expected from us. He told us, you know, what the standard, what he expected the standard to be and how we were going to work to get there. And we worked we worked coach was hard he was hard on us but he was fair and he was loving um you look back on it you we realize you see it now that he was kind to us he wanted to make us better uh ball players he wanted to make us better students he wanted to make us better men and uh we worked all day every day and he taught us to to care for one another care for the colors and it was like you don't embarrass your family you don't embarrass this team you don't embarrass this university and you you know that and I don't need to say that anymore and it was to put a standard there so you and getting back to what you were saying about where the university is now I feel like we helped establish that my group that came in in 86 by the time we left there this team that was winning two, three games was playing for champions for national championships. And that became the standard that became the floor. It wasn't, it wasn't the ceiling. It was the floor. Like that's, that's what you are there for. You, you, you're going to go to class. It, it was one of those things you don't even think about anymore. You're going to go to class. You're going to do the things that you're supposed to do. We're not going to fight about those issues. You know, that is a part of being a student athlete. You're also going to come in and you're going to compete at the highest level. That's the expectation. You belong in that stratosphere. This is what this is about. So when you put on these colors, you are expected to play at a certain level. You expect it from yourself. You expect it from your teammates. You expect that from your coaching staff. You expect it from the administration. You expect it from the fan base. This is how you're going to conduct yourself as a champion because you champions act like champions before they become champions. They do championship things before they become champions. They think like champions before they become champions. And we help set that. So when I see the university where it is now, uh, what it has become, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy because that's the standard now. It, this is not something where um, second is acceptable. It's not something where subpar is okay and you just try to get by. So that's that's what I feel that the football team put in place because uh, maybe, you know, I'm a little biased, but I believe a football team is going to set the standard for a university's athletic program. And I think it's a great, great athletic program that we have. And I constantly brag about it all the time. <laughs> Talking about laying that foundation that you guys did, 
Uh, you were here 86 to 89 in 1989, led the Gamecocks to a 13 and one record D two national finals appearance, GSC title. Uh, you yourself, you were named to the first team, all Gulf South conference team. And then later that year, you were named to the GSC eighties all decade team. And so your accolades obviously speak for themselves, but you guys, like you said, you laid that foundation and you left it better than you found it, wouldn't you say? Uh, that that was the goal, and that was the goal, and that's what we want everyone to do. Uh, you know what the standard is. There, there, we wanted – Coach wanted us to understand what we were capable of um, as athletes and students, and you just said it. Leave the place better. So decide what you want the team to be, what you want the university to be, what you want these colors to mean. When people hear Gamecocks, when they see that red walk onto the field, what what are their expectations? And it didn't matter where we played. Like Coach said, it doesn't matter if we played in the middle of the freeways. As long as they chalked it off, you know, 50-something yards wide and close to 100 long, we are going to show up, we're going to play, and since we have to play, we're going to win. That's just the mindset that we're going to win the things that we do. Um, I was fortunate. I mean, you know, you rattled off some things that I did personally. Those things don't happen if you don't have good people around you. I was very fortunate to be a part of a group of young men that wanted to be better, that wanted to excel, and we were good. And, and as I mentioned, they threw us out there as freshmen. So unlike today, it's rare that you get a group of guys that can play together for four years. And we really pretty much had the same group of guys <laughs> on the field for four years. There were a few sprinkled here and there, but for the most part, it was the same guys. And the level of competition between us individually was extremely high. And that was the thing. We were pushing one another to, to get better. We were pushing one another to find, you know, what our max was. And that, that was the thing. We were trying to max ourselves out. And in the middle of all that competition, there was you didn't have the animosity. Guys weren't jealous of one another. Guys were just trying to do the best they possibly could because ultimately we wanted to leave the place better, as you said. We wanted to create something that uh, had not been established, and we wanted to see what what level we could get that to so that the next crew came in with the mindset of this is what we were supposed to do. And we believed that we were champions and we wanted those younger guys right behind us to see this is the standard. This is what it's supposed to be. We're going to teach you guys where you belong. And all we ask is that the next crew, the next group that uh, group that comes in, the next crew that comes in, you do the same. You understand the legacy of wearing these colors. And, um, yeah, we left the place, I think, I'd like to think we left the place better off than we found it, uh, which is why I'm I'm so glad, again, that the university and the colors and the stadium and, and um, the athletic department and program has turned into what it's turned into, that it's done the things um, and competed at the level it's been competing at. Uh, over the years since I've been gone, uh, because that means that some of the things we were trying to do must have taken hold. 
After that season, mm-hmm. you're drafted in the second round, 53rd overall in 1990. You go on to spend 13 years in the NFL. Uh, along mm-hmm. the way, three All-Pros, uh, two Pro Bowls in 95 and 96, and then it's capped off, you know, in 95 with the Super Bowl win. Tell me about, if you can sum up that career and just your experience in the NFL and going from Anniston, Alabama, to playing on the biggest stage out there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it was a big jump. It was a big jump, uh, and you don't know how to um, you don't know how large that jump is going to be. But the thing about being a, being an athlete and playing ball is that that's what you've done. I had played football for so long. I, I mean, literally, I played football from the time I was in maybe third, fourth grade until I was um, now playing at that time, you know, we're talking the talking the you know, the Super Bowl until you're playing. I've been playing and I played every year of my life except for my seventh grade year over at Cobb Junior High School in Anniston. Uh, that's the only year I didn't play football, literally from the time I was 30, from, like I said, third to fourth grade until I was 34 years old. If football season comes, I play football. That's what I would do, except for that one year when they wouldn't let me play because they told me I was too small. <laughs> um, which actually, my, my favorite football play of all time, I always get asked about that. It ha- it occurred that following year in the eighth grade, I was the quarterback for that team, and we beat Oxford Middle School. We beat them, and we won the championship 14-8, and I scored all 14 points. And that was the team that had beaten us the year before, my seventh grade year, and they won the championship. And I, and I, after the game, the coach came up to me and he told me, he said, you had a really good game. And I said, coach, we could have won last year if you let me play. <laughs> <laughs> and we both started laughing. <laughs> we both started laughing. But that was, that's, that, that's a play that happened in that game to win the game is my favorite play all time. It didn't happen in the Super Bowl. It didn't happen, um, it didn't happen in a playoff game leading to the Super Bowl. It was that game as an eighth grader when I scored the winning touchdown for a coaching staff or for, for a squad where they told me you're not good enough. And they made me go and work and earn their respect and show them that I was good enough. And that's what competition is about. It's about reaching down within yourself and not trying to prove something to someone, but to prove it to yourself, because I had to find that within myself, the belief that I was good enough to get this done. And that's where it started. But back to that NFL, the, the feeling that how does that it's a, it was a larger stage. Yeah. You got a lot more eyes on you than your mom watching you win a championship in the um, eighth grade, but the game was the same. Uh, I had gone to Jacksonville, and this is really true. At my rookie year, my first early practices, the reporters would come in because, yeah, you're from a Division II school. We were Division II at that time. You're from the Division II school. You're drafted by the world champion 49ers, back-to-back champions. You're out here. Now you're chasing not a, not a Titus Dixon from, from – um, from Troy, I'm I'm chasing Jerry Rice around at practice, and the and I would get all the time. 
this that type question what is it like coming from you know alabama in a small school what does it feel like what's the difference and i would tell everyone it's really feels like practice it's the same it doesn't feel any different and they would look at me sort of cross-eyed and tell everyone well coach burgess and i and i said it and it's it's documented i would tell them well my coach coach burgess he, he he practiced us hard he expected the best from us. He, he expected us to put in the work to compete at the highest level um, and have, have a belief that if we did things properly, it was going to work. We were going to succeed. We were going to win. And, and I told everyone that that feeling with the 49ers, I said, it's the same. I said, this is a cha- championship group. It's a championship mindset. They expect me to catch up and do things at the level because there's a standard around here. And it, all I hear around here is that I'm that every single day it was men were here to win championships, and this is how we're going to do it. And I said I'm accustomed to that, and they sort of laughed like you're going coming from this small school. There's no way that you're ready for this. So I was never truly, truly I was never in awe of the situation. I never felt uncomfortable. I never felt like I was in over my head. It was just playing ball. And I expected, as crazy as it sounds, I expected to be I expected to be able to compete. I expected to be able to do my part. I knew I had things to learn. I knew I had to catch up. The pace was faster. The stakes were higher. Uh, but I always had this belief that I could get it done, and in some ways that I was supposed to get it done. So when I was out there, at the Super Bowl and playing and I walked out and, and you tell yourself all week long, like, Oh, well, this is just another game. It's just any other game. You always hear that cliche where, where the coaches are telling guys, we're going to perform. We're going to act like it's just any other day, any other game. Um, when you're out there on the field and you walk out there and all those cameras are flashing and you, you know, the the explosions are going off and the jets are flying over. You realize, well, hey, this just isn't another game. <laughs> <laughs> this is different. This right here is it's it's the big time, and there's a lot on the line. Uh, but you start playing, and I can tell you, it was no different than playing right there in Jacksonville. It was a football game. I was a little better. As a player, I knew more. I was a bigger, stronger, faster, but it was the, but my desire to get it done was the same way it was then. And I that's that foundation that we talked about, we were trying to build and that legacy we wanted to leave there, um, that was perfect training for me to be in that moment. The moment wasn't too big for me. And I think it had a lot to do with the way things were done while I was at Jacksonville state. And I, and I truly believe that. That 95 super bowl, uh, super bowl 29, you get a pick, you have two passes defended. You make six tackles, a huge contributor in that game. You're one of the best DBs in the league at the time. And you're doing this all around guys like Jerry Rice, Deion Sanders, Steve mm-hmm. Young. What was it like being a part of a team like that with the Hall of Famers of that caliber and you're right there on the field with them? 
Um, well, this is the thing that um, about football, and we all knew it. We had this expression when I was with the Niners, don't be the guy. And by that, we did. We meant don't be the guy to screw it up for everyone else. <laughs> uh, football is the ultimate team sport. No guy can win a football game by himself. That's why there's no such thing. You always have these, are these uh, discussions and these debates about the best football player ever. There's no such thing as the best football player. Now, you can always have a discussion about the, the specific positions, and you can talk about who's the best receiver, who's the best quarterback, who's the best defensive back. But there's no such thing as the best football player because the game is too position-specific. Jerry Rice, I think everyone would say he's the best wide receiver of all time. Jerry Rice can't play um, left guard. Um, Lawrence Taylor, you may say he's the best defensive player ever, where Lawrence Taylor can't play wide receiver. Uh, you, know, you know, Tom Brady, if you want to say he's the best quarterback, Tom Brady can't play. He can't play left tackle. So, that, so that's, that's the thing about the best football player. It, it's not there. And, and so that's why I say don't, don't be the guy that screwed up for everyone because one guy can't win a football game. One guy can destroy he can destroy everything for the other guys. So you have to understand the obligation, and that is something that I learned. Again, I'm going to go back to Jacksonville. That's why it was so the transition wasn't as difficult for me as it is for a lot of guys, not just leaving smaller schools, but leaving college in general. You have to, one of the most important things as a football player is understanding the obligation that you have to the others. There's an obligation and commitment. Those are the only things that football care about. It doesn't care about whether or not you like it, whether or not you love it. Football doesn't love you back. You can love the game, but it's not going to love you back. Football cares about your commitment and your obligation. And by that, I mean you have to, you have to understand obligation. You have to understand that you are obligated to do your job at the highest level, no matter how you feel, whether you are sick whether you are tired, whether you are injured. I mean, I play, I've, I literally broke bones from my feet to my neck. You played a game. I've, I played a, a season with, with uh, where I needed double hernia surgery. I had my shoulder completely rebuilt. I still have metal in it to this day. Um, I, at 25 years old, I played, I caught the chicken pox when I was 25. I thought I was going to die. I had to play. Oh, wow. <laughs> Trust me, you do not, you do not want to catch a chicken pox <laughs> as an adult. Um, uh, so, so these, but you, but, but that obligation, you have to get out on the field and do your job and perform at a level so that the person next to you is comfortable enough to do theirs at the highest level. You don't, they can't waste energy trying to think about, protect you, wonder if you're going to do your job and do theirs properly. So that's why you're obligated to do that. And the commitment part of that, as I said, football only cares about obligation and commitment. Are you committed enough to put in the work so that you can live up to your obligation? So those are the things that you have to do. So being on that field with those players there's just a standard and we competed every single day. It's not, it's not those guys are going to carry me. I'm going to do my job. And one of the greatest feelings was you talk about some of the great players I played on. And even in that defense and in that secondary, um, I, at that point I hadn't made a pro bowl team. I was a good player, 
but I hadn't made a Pro Bowl team. I hadn't made an All-Pro team, and I'm in a secondary, and you have Deion Sanders, the All-Pro, at the other corner. My two safeties were Merton Hanks, the All-Pro. Tim McDonald, the All-Pro, who I don't understand who, why he's not in the Hall of Fame yet, but Tim McDonald, the All-Pro. And then you had Eric Davis. So who are they going to try? Well, they're going to try me because those guys have already shown and proven consistently that trying them is going to get you in trouble. So they're going to try me. And like I said, don't be the guy. So if I'm the guy to not live up to that obligation, we lose. And I literally went into every game saying, well, if I play well, we have a chance to win. And we won the Super Bowl. I played well enough. I did my job well enough. I competed at a level that was championship level. And I'm happy about that. And how does it feel? It feels great because when I see those guys today, when, when we talk today, the love, the respect, um, the devotion to the commitment and the obligation they know was there. And I'm appreciated by them for that because they know we don't win that championship in that manner. We're not considered one of the greatest teams ever if I had been the guy. In sticking with that theme, uh, talking about the team aspect of it, obviously when people think about the 49ers, Rice and Steve Young normally come to mind, and you look at the high-powered mm-hmm. offense that you guys had, you won the Super Bowl 49-26 over San Diego. But on the flip side of that, you're outscoring opponents nearly by double when you look at the game-by-game. Mm-hmm. Game. And that says a lot about that defense. And looking specifically at 94 and 95, there were only 15 passing touchdowns thrown against you in 94 and only 19 in 95 against the mm-hmm. 49ers defense. And the guys that did that have names like Dan Marino, Jim Kelly, and Joe Montana. So there, there are no flukes that are getting by you guys. Uh-huh. And so I think a lot of focus goes to, like you were talking about before the podcast started, you know, the offense gets a lot of glory for that stuff. But at the same time, you're holding teams to 12 and 15 points per game. Uh, talk about just how tight that defense was that you guys had and some of those names that you mentioned. Uh, well, teams don't score. We always said this. This is the thing. Yes, it's it's all about the perception, and it's all about um, how a team is presented. Uh, football, and this is something I, I said before the podcast started. And the thing. Football is a television show. It's not a game. Pro sports. The NFL, it's an NFL game. Everyone, it's like, I'm going to the game, but it's really a TV show. So who do you want to advertise? How, how do you want to present it? And the game is presented as an offensive game. So the good teams, all it's rare that you're going to get a team. And, and, and the only time this really happens is if they just don't have any stars on their offense. If there are any stars on the offense that, that they can promote – then it'll be an offensive team when you don't have. So for the most part, it doesn't matter how a team wins. It's going to be an offensive team and they're going to promote the offensive stars. So 
the, uh, the 49ers, it was definitely Bill Walsh's, you know, it's a beautiful offense. And for some reason, they always considered it this finesse offense. There was nothing finesse about the 49ers. And those defensive numbers you just threw out there, it proves it. Trust me, there was nothing finesse about, like, the guys, the Tim McDonald and the Ronnie Lotts that I played with and the Chet Brooks and, and Tina Turner's and Matt Millen's. And <laughs> I can go down a list of names. Michael Carter is not... Charles Haley's, there was not finesse. They were, they were beat you up, you know, you know, let's go in the alley and you want to fight, you want to go in the bar and fight, you're going to lose a fight. We were tough. We were physical. We were nasty. Um, and the only way an offense can score a lot of points is to, is to have the ball. And that was our job. Take the ball. Let's get the ball. And let's, let's not let people score. And we didn't care where the ball came. And, and that's funny. And that those defenses – the the 94 defense and that team that won the Super Bowl, I personally would put that team up against anyone at any time in any era, and I think we win. I, I, I don't think you can put together a team better than that. If you look at that starting roster, that starting 22 offensively and defensively, I, I think – and we were all in our prime – I, I, I want to say out of the 22 guys, I, I want to say at least 18 of those guys were pro bowlers or all pro. You, you can't even afford to put that team together now with the salary caps, the way it is and everything. You will never be able to assemble that much talent on one team. I think there, uh, there may be like seven already like seven pro bowl. I, I mean, hall of famers on that team. Uh, so defensively, it was it was dominate. It, it some some of some of the the most incredible plays were made on Thursdays when we would. It was the only time we would go first offense versus first defense on Thursdays. And you want to talk about competing because we wanted those guys to know. Yeah, you may be scoring on everyone else, not us. <laughs> like no we we i don't care if that's jerry and steve young over there and john taylor and uh, you know no we you won't do that to us and we were out there competing like we are going to win and show you you better be glad we're on your team that's the mindset and that offense was the same way they were like okay you guys may not be letting anyone else do anything but we're going to try to show you guys we are the best in the world uh so you you go out and you compete and that defense that we had and the way we played because you said we won the Super Bowl the next year and the next and the following season we were the number one defense in the league uh, and and uh, we were out there with the mindset to do just what you were talking about give the ball back to this offense so they can score we had such belief in what they were do what they were going to do that we knew if we give them a couple of turnovers. You stand no chance of beating us. And then that sort of morphed into us. Like, why don't we just score ourselves? <laughs> why, why don't we just, why don't we just try to put the ball into the end zone? Let's, let's get some points. And then, and the competition really did start between um, us in the defensive backfield where we we started, you know, we started putting, you know, bets on one another, like who can get an interception. And if you're on the field and I get an interception and you owe me this much money. And if I score a touchdown off of that, it's this much money. If you cause a fumble, it's this much money. And if you recover a fumble, recover a fumble, it's this much. So we started not only competing against the team, but competing 
against uh, each other as we competed against the opponent uh, because we wanted to find different ways to pull the absolute best out of one another. And in the meantime, be nasty doing it because that's football. That's defensive football. And that's, that's how coach Burgess, I, and I keep going back to that. It was normal to me because that's how coach Burgess taught us. You fly around, you get to the ball, you make people uncomfortable. Uh, football is a game in which you don't have to talk. The greatest thing about football, unlike other sports, uh, where guys can talk about how tough they are and, and they can pretend to be this bad guy and they can pretend to be able to do a certain to, to, to have a certain demeanor. Well, football, I get to hit you. I, I can physically put my hands on you and prove to you you're not that tough. And the greatest thing about the game is that you get to prove that you are. So that's what Coach Burgess taught us. Prove to that opponent that you are that tough, that you do want it. And that, that even transcended when I got to the Niners because it was about winning. Um, even beyond that, that it's, you have to have it. There's no alternative. They're, they're, one, everyone wants to win. One team hits the field and they have to have it. Of course you want to win. You're out there competing. You want to win. I, but what are you willing to do to make certain that that doesn't happen? How much pain will you play through? How focused will you be? Um, how, how, how dedicated will you be to that moment and not allow that moment to be larger than you? How big can you get in the crucial moments when it comes down to your time to make that play? And we all wanted to be that guy and not be the guy to let everyone down. So those defenses and those teams – the mindset that we had was trying to compete and, and play up to that level. And when you have, you know, me, I'm looking at when I have these hall of fame guys around me and you, and you have such physically gifted people around you, all you could do is push yourself to the limit to do your part uh, because the standard can't dip when it comes your time, when they call your number, because the only way you can make a play is when it's time for you to make a play. And when it's your time, you have to show up. And I had to make certain that I showed up and the other guys were making certain that they showed up. And at the end of the day, we were able to do some incredible things together. Talking about that defense deciding, why don't we score our own touchdowns? You did that five times in your career. You picked up one fumble for a touchdown and then you returned four interceptions of those five defensive touchdowns, which one stands out in your mind the most? Um, well, the one that's going to stand out the most is the the interception against the Cowboys in the NFC Championship. It's probably because that's the one that stands out um, in history the most. I, you know, I, I don't think you're going to talk about. Um, and George Seifert told me that uh, it was funny at the ring ceremony. He said, you do realize that they'll never talk about the 49ers again and not talk about you. Um, and, and, and when you think about that, one of the most um, storied franchises in all of sports, um, not just football in all of sports, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the greatest franchises in all of for, sports. Um, my name really is um, synonymous with, uh, championship ball because of a play I made 
and got things started. You know, the way I, the, the championship game that I played when it mattered against a team that we had to beat uh, because again, that was a day where we, we had lost to those guys in, in 92 and 93 and 92. I feel we were better. We were a better club and we should have won that game. I, I will, I will really go to my grave believing that we were better. 93 when we went to Dallas to play them that second time that's the best football I've played against at any level in my life it's the best football team I ever played against they were they were better than us they beat us and if we had played them if we had played them 20 more quarters it would have only gotten uglier they they beat us they were a better club they were a better squad and that following year there was no way I mean I literally after we lost that NFC championship game to them in Dallas I took two days off and I started training. I, I, I literally, they were like, you take the weekend off. I, I was right back in the lab, pre- prepping, getting ready. And it, that was most of the team. And, and at that time, there were no off-season conditioning programs. There were no OTAs. The coaches didn't make you come around. That was, that's the mindset of the club that you're dealing with. And, and we were already working. And then you start to bring in new players. So, then they bring in a Ken Norton. They bring in a Ricky Waters and a Richard Dent. And, um, uh, you know, Prime comes a, a little bit later. And uh, every – so the mindset was already there. And most and, – and everyone thinks that those players came in and they changed our head. Like, no, those guys weren't – you know, Ricky – you know, um, Ricky Jackson, Hall of Famer, uh, hadn't been on winning teams like that. Deion Sanders, Hall of Famer, he had been on really bad teams. They were in our division, and we would beat them twice a year down in Atlanta. Um, so we had already had something established, but these guys came in, and they were such great players. That standard is what they had been fiending for. So we all came in, and all started working, and all started pushing because we wanted to get to that next level, and, and we were able to get to that next level. And, and and it was it was amazing just doing that and, and just going around. But I mean, but but all of those bodies and, and everyone being there, uh, that that was great. But that play, that play, like I said, it 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 helped fuel that fuel that it helped get everyone going. And before that game, Deion Sanders was asking me because this was the first time he had ever been in a championship game. It had an opportunity to, to get to a Super Bowl. This was his first opportunity. And before that game, he and I were in the locker room, and I, I have a picture of it that I posted. Oh, oh, I, just, I think I posted it a while back, but it's a picture where we were sitting in front of our lockers. His locker was right next to mine, and he and he asked me, he was like, "Man, how do you feel? You know, how's it going to be?" And I and I just looked at him and I said, "We got this." And Later on, he told me that was the most relaxing thing that had ever occurred to him before a game. He said just the belief that I had and the way I said that to him, he just knew. We got this. And I remember having that feeling as a young player when uh, we were losing a game by three scores and we and we scored to bring it. We were losing by four scores and we, we scored right as the third quarter ended. And Joe Montana was walking off the field, and I was getting ready to go out for kickoff. I was a rookie, and he was walking off the field. And Joe looked at me, and he said, E, we got him now. And it's funny, I, I, and I remember that feeling. I just relaxed. And I was like, oh, we got this. And we ended up winning the game. And, and that was the belief that we all had in one another. And it was interesting that I was able to get that to him 
go out and get that interception and score. And it validated, I think, to the entire team that we were ready. Today, we were ready. That team that had beaten us the previous two years and taken our Super Bowl, as far as we were concerned, they had taken it from us. And no one gives you a championship. You have to earn it. You have to take it. We were there to take it. And that so that play to the teammates, the belief that it instilled in them, to the fan base and everyone who rooted for the colors of the 49ers, uh, it let everyone know that, okay, not today. We're going to do this. And we went on. And we've already discussed the fact, you know, we went on to not only win that game, which really was the Super Bowl, but we went on and beat San Diego in the Super Bowl. I think that's that's the most important play, you know, that's the most important play of those touchdowns. Um, so I, 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 got, I guess I have to put that one there just because of the significance, because it's it, it's not a bad thing to be a part of the of, of the story when you talk about championships in the San Francisco 49ers. It's not a it's not a bad thing to have your name mentioned in that light. That's amazing. You know, right now, uh, while everyone's in quarantine, ESPN's done everyone a favor and released The Last Dance. And, you know, Michael Jordan has his flu game. Tell me about the Eric Davis chicken pox game. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's just one that you're just uncomfortable. So you just play and you're just uncomfortable. That's not even the worst. I, I mean, I I had days, like I said, I had the, the chicken pox is not, it's just one of those things, like I said, you, you, that's just uncomfortable, not pain. Uh, you just you just really want to put a bullet in your head. Trust that <laughs> getting chicken pox, I really Really, if someone had given me an ice pick, not to be too graphic, but it's going to be, if someone had given me an ice pick, and if you had put an ice pick in my hand, I would have stuck it in my right eye and just swirled to try and end it all. I, I, it, it was the most uncomfortable thing. Oh, my goodness. I, I, it was so bad. I, I, I literally had pox under, I mean, the palms of my hand, the soles of my feet, inside my mouth. My eyelids, under my eyelids, they, my eyelids were rolling up. They were under my eyelids. And my gums, under my nails. I mean, my nails were lifting. I, it was incredible. Who did incredible. you guys have that week? Uh, I don't even remember. That's how bad it is. I don't even remember. <laughs> I, I could probably go back and figure it out, but I can't even, I can't even remember. Huh. Um, but it was, it was because I can't think about anything other than that. But that was the, that was uncomfortable. The having to play with when the season I needed the hernia surgery. I believe that was my fifth year um, when we had the number one defense. I played. No, it was no. Was that no? Actually, I think it was before. I think that was like. Anyway, I think I, I can't even remember. I think it was that year, but I had to take a I had to take a needle, um, right in like I need I had double hernias. I had to have surgery at the end of the season. We we couldn't figure out what was wrong at first. Um, it it just felt like I had just torn my abs and my groin, 
I literally felt like my leg was going to fall off. And I, I didn't practice. After about the third week of the season, I didn't practice at all. I, I would literally watch Wednesday's practice, Thursday's practice, Friday we would do red zone because, you know, you do certain segments of practice, you know, months, you know, you, you put in the run game and first and second down on Wednesdays and then Thursdays you'll do uh, third down and all the nickel plays and, and, you know, certain situations that, you know, everything is situational in football Fridays, you work on red zone, uh, red zone. Since I didn't have to run that far, I would get out and sort of walk through the red zone segment. That's all. That's the only practice I would do. And I, that happened for the remainder of the season. And I would literally have to take a needle to just numb everything. And you imagine a needle is about four inches long and the size of probably like a roofing nail. I would take that needle. Um, I would take that needle right between my um, pubis bones. So, so you think of that area. I would stand there and watch them insert a nail in me to numb everything, to play. And I'd play the game because uh, everything would be numb. And then about 2.33 in the morning, I'd be in the fetal position. <laughs> so much pain. <laughs> but those are the things you do to play football back to that obligation. Remember that obligation? I knew that my guys depended on me being out there. To, to have a certain comfort level for them to do their jobs. Again, something that I learned with Coach Burgess. Early in my career, my freshman year, my sophomore year, if you didn't practice, you didn't play. If you, couldn't, if you weren't healthy enough to practice, you couldn't play. My junior, senior year, I remember Coach Burgess coming up to me and asking me how I felt because I had hurt my ankle really bad. And he asked me, how do I feel? And I, and I was like, coach, I can't practice. And, I, he, and he was like, if you take this time off, you think you'll be able to go Saturday. And I said, coach, it doesn't matter how I feel. I'll play on Saturday. And he said, okay, I'm gonna let you play. And it, because, and, and that right there was one of those things where I realized the other guys depended on me. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't that, Oh, we can't do this without you. It's just a certain mindset. Our defense had been together and we all knew we had a certain job to do, and we all felt comfortable with one another. And when we were all in that huddle, we thought we were invincible. So you don't destroy that. And the same thing carried over into, into the pros. So if I could take this needle, numb things enough to lessen the pain to a point to where I can just go out and play, because without it, I, I mean, it, it wasn't that I didn't want to. I just couldn't, I couldn't move my leg. It was like dragging it around. You take the needle, you play with the knowing that you are going to want to die in the middle of the night from the pain. You, you know, that's probably what's going to put you to sleep. You're going to pass out from the pain. Uh, that's just, that's what you do. So, um, you know, Mike had his flu and I'm sure that that was um, a difficult thing to do that one night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you try you try taking a needle in a sport where your job I play defense on defense see offensive offensive ball that's why they always talk about physical receivers and all these things and I've always said a physical receiver is an oxymoron uh, because of a receiver's entire mindset is space distance avoidance that 
has nothing to do with physicality. Mm-hmm. Defensively, your job is to run into another human being and get them on the ground. That's your job, to seek contact. So when you physically are, are employed, you are employed to run into human beings with your body with no disregard for your own personal being. And you have to do so um, knowing that your body is literally, um, I, I felt like a wishbone, like someone had grabbed a wishbone and they were just yanking it and breaking it. That's how my body felt when everything would wear off, like they had just ripped one of my legs off. Um, it's, it's a little, I personally, you know, Mike is Mike. We all know who Mike is, but I, I would take one night of playing with the flu, even one night, even though it lasts a lot longer, one night with the chicken pox and playing, as opposed to having to play a couple of months under those conditions. And you know, it, it taught me a lot. I mean, I, I think I'm a pretty mentally tough guy. And I can handle most things uh, because of some of the things I had to go through as a football player. You trucked on for a number of years after that. You ended up retiring in 2002 at the age of 34, wrapped up uh, your career with the Detroit Lions. Uh, Since then, how has retirement been for you? And I know now you're busy. You've got some projects going on. Tell us what you're into now. Um, well, since then, you know what, when I first retired, it's funny, when I first retired and they were asking me to get into football and, and things, I didn't want to be around it. Cause, you know, I mentioned I had, I had been a part of football from the time I was in the third grade until I was 34 years old. And, and I was sort of burned out. And I literally retired. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I retired in 2002. So 2001, I'm with the Denver Broncos and 9-11. I remember waking up and my family were going to come up because this, this was the first time I had ever been without my family. My kids had gotten to my oldest had gotten to a point to, because before wherever we went, you know, between Carolina, San Francisco, we could just go half the year in California or half the year you know, during the season, we could be in Charlotte. Um, but it got to a point where we had to be in one or the other because of just the level of school it was difficult to go half the year in one half year, the other for my oldest. So we, it was his decision. He decided I'm going to, you know, Charlotte, I like Charlotte. So we were there full time. I, I take a gig with, with, um, Denver and the family was flying in for the game. So I'm there and nine 11. So that changed travel, that changed everything. So I was really ready to stop playing the following year. Matt Millen, who was one of my teammates, is now – he was one of my former teammates. He's now the president of the Detroit Lions. He talks me into coming up, helping some of those young guys. You know, I want pros. Like, like, I need you to teach this defensive back room how to prep, how to play, try how to get to the next level. Uh, some of the lessons that I had learned at Jacksonville, some of the lessons I had learned, uh, you know, with the 49ers and the Panthers and it, – it, 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 can you please pass those lessons on? So I go do that. Season's over. I'm done. I I didn't like being without the family. So, but I wasn't I wasn't wanting to be a part of football. So I was, you know, the carpool dad. I was all those things. You know, let's 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 be that guy and hang around. After a while, you know, after my after 
you know, telling my wife, uh, you know, maybe we should put this chair over here or put this painting here. She told me, she was like, you need to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) When I started, when I started trying to redecorate the house, she was like, you need something to do. So I, 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 I really truly did like today guys retire and before they're even retiring from football, they're already uh, working on in television or radio or doing those things. And, and me, I, I had been asked to do it and I didn't do it. So, you know, every year, you know, there's another Tom Dickin quarterback that comes out and they're jumping into that. So I just, I thought about it and I was like, you know, I actually know the game. I like the game. I, I didn't want to coach at that time because I knew how much time it, I, it was, I, you know, I was spending 10, 12 hours a day as a player um, to do the job at the level I thought was necessary. And when I was leaving, the coaches were there. They were there when I got there. They were there when I was leaving. And I was like, I like my family. I didn't want to be gone that long. Uh, so I didn't want to coach. And I was like, I, but I do like the game. So I, I literally started going to the local radio stations, the local TV stations and saying, can I get in? So I, I was literally doing high school. I was sidelined on local high school games. I was calling local high school games. I was interviewing high school guys. I mean, I was literally driving three hours one way to, to do a, a high school game, Pittsburgh versus De La Salle or something like that. Hmm. Or, you know, just doing those because I wanted to learn the craft. And I got an opportunity to then interview uh, for the for the 49ers, um, play-by-play guy and all of these things. So just to cut to the chase, I, as I learned the craft and I worked at it and started to understand, you know, I wanted to know every aspect of it, the production aspect of it and everything. I sort of worked my skill set up to where I was given an opportunity to start, you know, doing, you know, local radio and just local spots on things. And that morphed into national things, um, and, you know, and eventually working with ESPN and CBS and calling games for them and calling games for the Niners and, and working at NFL Network and Fox Sports and everything else. So uh, those things, I, I have enjoyed being around the game um, in that manner. And talking about the game, uh, you know, the, the playing is the ultimate. Coaching is the second best thing. And then, you know, broadcasting, being being involved in it from that aspect as an analyst and still knowing the players and talking to the players. Those things have been great, um, you know, and just working on that, you know, you know, taking watching the kids grow, um, helping out in whenever I can from a high school standpoint, college kids, and some of the pros still doing the same thing, talking to those guys and, and passing on lessons like the old heads passed on lessons to me. Uh, but, now, you know, as you get older in your 50s, you start to look at things and, like I say, some of these lessons learned, be, be them good, be them bad. Things, um, you, you learn from the things that have happened and how it happened and how do you help others. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's a part of something that I have going on now. I have a program that will it'll be out, and, and hopefully, can't, well, I know I'll, I'll bring it up to the campus. I've already talked to the ADs about it up there. Um, uh, you know, there's a program, Athlete Brand Guard, um, and it will, we are going to release that. We're building out the site, and, but we finished all the, all the classroom curriculum. We have basically put together a format uh, from a from a player standpoint analyst standpoint 
uh, from a media standpoint. My, my, my business partner involved in this um, it, it is a former Northwestern um, instructor. Uh, he's a former uh, CNN anchor, lead anchor. Uh, he's been a network executive, so he understands it from the media side of things exactly how they try and twist things and the good, the bad, the indifferent from the media standpoint. I know it from a player standpoint, from an analyst, um, how they try to get you to break down things. So this program is about getting, it's, it's about life skills. So that's something, life skills, um, growth and understanding, um, etiquette, on how to handle the different aspects of the reality show you are in as a young, uh, as a young man, as a young woman in athletics, your worth to a to a university, um, to a newspaper outlet from from a media, be it print, be it um, television, be it um, digital, be it social. All of these things is the understanding of of the business that you are. So that's what Athlete Brand Guard is about. So that is something that I think will help the next generation of kids understand what they're getting into because there's so much money involved, you know. There's so much money. There's so much pressure. There's so much that goes into being that student athlete, and, and everyone – outside of that circle thinks that everything is easy for these guys but they don't and they don't understand that these men and women are normal people that have to deal with things uh, and that really non-student athletes even at the lower levels don't have to deal with it's it's a little different so that is something that we're trying to put together and and it and it's just it's seminars it's really it's a full curriculum. We've been working with universities. I mean, BYU, UCLA, um, USC, uh, Stanford. We've been working with universities to really put together a full curriculum that can be taught as a semester course. But we're going to put it together online to where you can just come in and just get phases of it uh, and just pieces of it because I think it's valuable to all students. So that's one thing we're working on. You know, I mentioned I mentioned you know I do a podcast with Believe Network right now. This one's called Believe in Forty ers but we um, talk about you know just the teams in general. We talk about all sports and how things happen, uh, but you know that's just in my blood. So Believe in Forty ers is a podcast where I, I you know I get to talk football and the things that are happening and the things that um, uh, that are happening with the team. Of course, you, you know some of you know the Forty ers specific, the team and the players, but we go across the board uh, talking about things that are relevant. You know, you always have to play the hits. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to play the hits. So, so we talk about that, especially if in some way uh, they relate to what's happening with, with the 49ers. You know, Cam Newton gets cut and he gets released. So you could always bring that story into would he be a fit, you know, as a starter, as a backup with the team. You, so you talk about things that way. Um and um, there's another there's there's a TV show that we're looking at uh, we're building out right now and getting distribution all of that um, set up that's going to be called Player Player. Uh, well, I'll be the host of that show, and uh, we'll shoot that out of LA here. So that's that's in the makes right now, and that's 
what I want to do with that show is go beyond the typical interview segment with, um, and it's player, player, and that's not just athletes, I, I, be it musicians, be it um, artists, uh, because everyone's a player in their particular field. Uh, but I want the I want the conversation to go beyond just your regular accomplishments. I'd like it to be a conversation, a real conversation that players have, the type that that you have with with your peers, or you talk about the things that actually interest you, that actually matter. What really happened in in those moments? Uh, what goes? What does everyone think they know about you? Your your comments on what everyone believes happened that day, or how you truly are, the things you'd like people to know about you that they don't know that they think they know. Uh, you know, because there, those questions are never asked. You know, like like I said, I, I I think about things when I played, and I told someone this once that you know, like I skydive. No one on planet Earth knows that unless I say it. You know, I was trained in a piano. No one, you know, knows that unless I say it because everyone's always talking about the next game or your teammates or what happened at on that play. But you're just a normal human being that has to learn to deal with these things. You know, so that's where I kind of blend all these things, the athlete brand guard to help the youngsters kind of get an understanding of the landscape of the reality show and how big a star they could be because no one ever teaches you how to be famous and, and whether it's your local high school level of fame or it's, um, or if it's balling out and you are the player of the game and you know, the NFC championship because you scored it and all now all of these cameras are in your face, Super Bowl week you know, no one teaches you how to how to be famous. Uh, and so we're trying to give you a playbook on how to deal with that fame as it comes or as it doesn't come. How to deal with those moments when you are seeking that or putting yourself in position to have to deal with that. Uh, the show is the conversations that go on with you in your life. You know, that's what player player is, uh, you know, and those are the, you know, the, the ends and the things that I'm sort of doing right now just to keep my brain functioning. Uh, I, I, I'm a football lifer. I thought about that once, and everyone always talks about the things that you do and what you're trained in. As I said, in third grade, I, I look back, I started training for this profession. Um, I, I know the game. I'm, I'm, I, this is what I tell everyone now. I'm a fan of the game, and I try to think that I'm a relatively knowledgeable fan. <laughs> uh, and I try to talk about it and explain it in a manner in which it doesn't insult, uh, where it doesn't insult the intelligence of knowledgeable fans. But I also um, refuse to be so technical mm -hmm. that the layman can't understand it uh, because I think that you're doing a poor job as an analyst if you can't explain the game to where everyone understands it and feels comfortable and they can see what you see. Uh, I, I want to, I want to teach from the lessons that I've learned and the experiences I've had, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Uh, I, I think that my situation is coming from Anniston, Alabama, playing at a small division one, I mean, division two school, um, becoming 
learning from greats, becoming a pretty good player, an all-star player on a marquee team in a marquee market and all the fame and attention that goes from that. Being the small school guy that people say couldn't do it to being the being the um, the um, free agent that everyone wanted to sign when you're you know being the all pro free agent, uh, going from a guy that no one thought had a chance to being drafted in the second round, uh, going from a guy that. Uh, you know w- whether or not this guy belongs to being a guy that an, uh, that a new organization like the Carolina Panthers asked to come and help them build their organization. We believe that you are a part of what we want to be, and we'd like you to help establish what we are. I think all of those things I've gone through, and from from all of, from all the different aspects of things, you know, working in television. And, and understanding this is, this is how you grow and this is what happens in this business and this is how things are. I, I think I can pass some of those lessons on. So that's what I'm trying to do now. That's what I'm trying to put together. Uh, I feel good about where we are. I'm going to feel great about these things. But, you know, this, this quarantine time here has sort of uh, allowed us to get some things in place. So I think we'll be ready to go you know, this fall, uh, when, when the world gets going again. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's where I am. That's what I've been doing, man. You know, I, a little bit of what I've been doing. <laughs> I've, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, we'll wrap it up here in just a few minutes, but before you go, I definitely want to ask you what your favorite coach Burgess moment was. <laughs> oh, well, my absolute favorite coach Burgess moment was coach would come out and he wore he wore his gray sweatshirt with Gamecocks across um, the front of it had the red red and white sleeves a uh, red and white cuff on the sleeves uh, and he'd have his gray v-neck sweatshirt on um, and his shorts he wore that to every day and I remember we would always look at coach and it's like okay it didn't matter if it was hot if it was cold, he wore he. That's what he wore to practice, and I remember, and we was like, this man does not feel anything, because <laughs> there were the days where it would be freezing. We would be out there practicing, and it would be freezing. And I and I've always said the coldest water on planet Earth, the coldest water. I don't I don't think it's this cold if you go to Antarctica. The coldest water is when you're out there practicing, and. The ice, you can hear the ice bouncing off of your head from the sleep when that mm. ice and rain is falling. And when the water rolls right off of the back of your helmet and that space between your shoulder pads and your <laughs> neck, that little opening, when the water drips off of there and just rolls right down your spine, that's the coldest water in the world. And it was one of those days where ice was bouncing off our helmets, just sleet, and we were just standing there, and Coach Burgess would have, you know, the periods up, so, you you know, you'd have to go from 1 to 20, and if we were screwing up, he, you'd look over there, and it's back on 1, and you're like, oh, my goodness, we're going to be here forever. You make it you make it to 9, and you got to go back because somebody messed up, uh, but we, it was one of those days we were out there, and it was freezing, and that board had gone back to 1 a few times. Mm. 
and we finally got to the end and they were doing some special team things and I wasn't on it. And I went and stood next to coach Burgess and the entire, and like always for four years, I'd watch it. And I was like, I know he's gotta be cold and he would never show anything. And I didn't even, I, I was standing there next to him and he looked over at me and he said, Eric, and I was, I was like, yeah, coach. He said, it's cold out here, huh? <laughs> and I remember looking at him and I was like, yeah, it is coach. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and in my head in that moment, I was like, okay, he's not a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Up until that point, I thought he was a machine. I really did. I thought he was a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first time I actually knew that he, he, he was sensitive to heat and cold. And and that's, that's, I will never forget that when he told me, he was like, I am cold. And that was, that's the one for me <laughs> that I can tell on here. <laughs> I got a couple others. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to be told after we, after we stop recording. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been fantastic talking to you. I know our fans are going to enjoy it. Uh, hope that you and yours stay safe. Best of luck with all your projects. Can't wait to see you here in Jacksonville very soon. All right, man. Thank you for having me. I apologize for being so long-winded. You're going to have fun trying to cut this down to size. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I enjoy it. All right. Good talking to you. That'll do it for this week's edition of Behind the Beak. I hope that you and yours are healthy, and I will talk to you again next week. I'll be back Tuesday with a brand new episode and another guest. With that, I'm Tyler Brown saying thank you for listening and go Gamecocks. This has been Behind the Beak, the official podcast of Jacksonville State Athletics. Look for new episodes each week or browse the archives on the Apple Podcast app or by visiting jsugamecocksports.com. For more on Jacksonville State Athletics, visit the official website of the Gamecocks, jsugamecocksports.com, and follow JSU on social media by searching at JSU Gamecocks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.